Welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, journalist Helen Fospero. It's 20 years since September the 11th and the start of the war on terror, and just a few weeks since America pulled out of Afghanistan. This week's guest is an internationally recognised expert on security issues, counter-terrorism and interrogation. Following the 9-11 attacks, Mark Fallon was appointed Deputy Commander and Special Agent in Charge of the Pentagon Task Force, established to bring terrorists to justice before military commissions. Mark has been involved in some of the most high-profile and significant terrorism investigations in history, including the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and the bombing of the USS Cole Naval Ship during a refueling stop in Yemen back in 2000. Mark helped to bring blind Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman to justice following the plot to blow up New York tunnels and bridges. He promotes the application of science to improve the practice of interviewing and interrogation, teaching rapport techniques he's learned and helped develop during a successful 27-year career as a special agent at NCIS, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service. He's a harsh critic of theories that cruel and immoral interrogation techniques like waterboarding and sleep deprivation are effective in gaining useful intelligence. He's a regular contributor on news programmes and documentary films and features prominently on the latest Netflix series Turning Point 9-11 and The War on Terror. Mark's an author, writer, consultant, strategist, scholar, teacher and reformer And the list of distinguished awards and commendations he's received, well, that simply goes on. He joins us from the US state of Georgia, where he's a visiting scholar at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice Psychology Department. Mark, it is an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. That is quite a CV and officially the longest introduction I've ever done for the Convex Conversation. Well, Helen, it's really a pleasure to be with you here today, and thank you for that gracious uh, introduction. It's just reflective of all of the stuff the government threw me into to see how I'd fare over the years. Well, it sounds like you've fared incredibly well, and we're really looking forward to hearing your story today. Becoming a special agent, Mark, certainly wasn't offered by my careers teacher. I just wondered if we can step back a little bit first, quite a long way in time, to find out what inspired you to get into this field. As a youth in New Jersey, a youth growing up just about five miles outside of the Holland Tunnel in in New Jersey, uh, my father was a detective. My grandfather was a councilman and a police commissioner. And since I was a kid, all I ever aspired to do was fight crime. And uh, while I worked my way through college, Roger Williams College, now Roger Williams University, after two years, I became a uniform constable in Old Lyme, Connecticut. Uh, 1976, the first time I pinned on a badge and strapped on a gun, decided I didn't like the uniform as much. I wanted to be an investigator, went back and finished my degree, became a deputy U.S. marshal when I graduated, and then I was kind of recruited into uh, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, then called NIS, the Naval Investigative Service, and prior to that, it was called the ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence, an organization that had its roots in counterintelligence and then evolved to a criminal investigative organization. So as a New Jersey boy then, Mark, what was it that really made you want to fight crime? I mean, obviously, there's a little bit of family history there and perhaps inspiration from your father and grandfather. But what was it inside you that made you think that this really was your mission in life, if you like? You know, Helen, I I never liked bullies. 
as a kid growing up, if I found myself in a scrap, it was usually uh, trying to intercede or when someone was bullying someone else. And I guess just that uh, kind of defensive uh, mechanism that I had translated into becoming, uh, you know, an NCS agent where you're really the guardians of the warfighter. You're not in the military, but you support the military. But your role is to ensure that our national security is protected in the United States by ensuring that the military can run uh, efficiently and effectively. There's probably not a better fit for me than the fit that I had with NCIS. And through your work at NCIS, you ended up working on some of the most important terrorism cases in history. There's an NPR journalist who calls me the uh, the Forrest Gump of terrorism <laughs> because uh, she says whenever there's a terrorist uh, attack, if you look in the background, you'll probably see me in the shadows somewhere. I wound up by circumstance. People ask me, well, how did you pick to get involved in those cases? You, you don't pick to get involved in those cases. Things unfortunately blew up on my watch. The coal was attacked when I was the chief of counterintelligence for NCIS for the Europe, Africa, and Middle East Division. And so you, you do your job. And that's one of the things that I always emphasize when I give leadership training or I give training and in interrogations, how to effectively interview people. Do your job in player position. We train for a certain thing and we need to evolve how we approach that as we learn more. But when things go awry, it's when people who don't know what they're doing try to intercede because they believe they know what they're doing. And that's really what happened after 9-11. We made a lot of mistakes as a government. The UK made a lot of mistakes as a government. And I, I firmly believe if people just played their positions and let people with the expertise do their job, things would have turned out much, much better than they have right now. I watched the Twin Towers fall in real life, Mark, from my fire escape on my apartment in Lower Manhattan and covered the aftermath as US correspondent for an ITV breakfast show for the best part of a year following those attacks. But ironically, you were here in London at the time. What was that day like for you? It's kind of uh, surreal, Helen, because uh, I left Dulles Airport in outside of Washington, D.C. on an international flight on uh, United Airlines Flight 2 uh, that departed about 7.45 p.m. on September 10th. I arrived in London on September 11th, not knowing that probably 12 hours after I passed through the metal detectors and security screening, the hijackers may have passed through those same metal detectors that I had. I arrived in London. I stayed uh, right across from the U.S. Embassy. NCIS had an office, uh, 7 North Audley Street in the Navy Building. And I was actually in London to brief officials at the Joint Analysis Center, the Jack in Molesworth. And then I was supposed to move on from there to the NATO Defense Minister's Conference in Brussels, Belgium, to tell them about the dangers of how a terrorist cell can set up and attack you because of the lessons we learned from the USS Cole investigation. Oh my goodness. Unfortunately, I got to my hotel room as I was unpacking uh, my bags. I think it was the uh, Millennium Mayfair Hotel. If I recall correctly, I have pretty good notes. I could probably tell you what room I stayed in. <laughs> uh, I even know that on my flight, investigators keep good notes. So I know that on my flight over on UA Flight 2, I was in seat 38K. Uh, that's how Gosh, detailed that's investigators that you still know that. keep their notes. So uh, I got to my hotel room and I always turn on the television. I usually try to you know, see what's going on and I, I was unpacking and, and I saw the planes, I uh, saw the smoldering tower uh, I immediately just dropped whatever clothes I had in my hands and I ran to the NCIS office because we had just sent 
uh, agents back into Yemen to continue the investigation of the attack on the coal. And I immediately knew it was Al-Qaeda. I mean, it was a signature operation. As soon as I saw the hole in the tower, it hadn't fallen yet when I first turned the television on, ran into the building and I was so pumped, filled with rage and everything, all the emotions that everyone uh, had. But I was also fearful of personnel that we had sent into Yemen to investigate the coal. So I uh, ran up the stairs in the Navy building, ran right by the Marine guards, and I couldn't even remember the cipher lock uh, on the door. And I'm pounding on the door and they they let me in. And and fortunately, our people in Yemen were safe. I got word to them and not knowing that NCI's headquarters were worried about my safety, because as the commander of the USS Skull Task Force, I was running with John O'Neill from the FBI, the investigations of the attack on the coal. And so my headquarters was believing that I might have been a target as well. John O'Neill, unfortunately, had retired from the FBI just weeks earlier, and he perished in the World Trade Center. Uh, He was the head of security for the World Trade Center. I was just back in New York City. I went to the memorial and stood in front of John's name there in the reflecting pools. Pretty surreal setting for me being in London at that time. Absolutely. It seems ironic, doesn't it, that you were in London and I was living in New York. And it's only in the recent last year or two that I've actually been able to visit the memorial. I've just found it, I don't know, just too emotional when you watch something 10 blocks away unfold and the phrase, it felt like the end of the world is an overused phrase, but I'm sure you can imagine watching both of those buildings come down from not very far away. Interesting to hear you say mistakes were made with the US government here as well in London with the British government. What mistakes were made in your opinion, Mark? Well, what happens is, you know, decisions were made based on fear, ignorance, uh, and arrogance. In doing so, in the United States, President Bush, unfortunately, my opinion, lost his way, lost his bearing. He was frazzled by the attack, obviously. He was warned back in August that bin Laden wanted to attack the U.S. Part of that warning in a presidential uh, decision brief actually said that one of the things that they wanted to do was to release the blind Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, who I helped put in jail back in the 90s. The sequence of events was, the, of course, the attacks were on September 11th, but by September 17th, the president issued something that was never supposed to be known to the public. It's called a, a memorandum of notification. A finding is what you probably hear it referred to uh, by journalists, but it's a secret covert action where the president authorized the CIA to establish what later became known as the RDI program, rendition, detention, and interrogation program. And none of those things were core competencies of the CIA. While they did have a capacity to do renditions, which are really just secret kidnappings, which they had done with the FBI on judicial warrants, where judges had said that we can extradite someone, and they had done some of those in the past. But as an agency, they're an intelligence collection agency. They had no experience in detention operations, zero. And really, as interrogation Over history, what the CIA had done in programs that date back to the 50s and 60s, terms like MKUltra, which you may have heard of, or the Kubark counterintelligence manual, or they would call it different things over the years. One point when the term interrogation had a bad name, they decided we can't call what we do interrogation anymore because it, you know, it has a bad reputation. So why don't we call it human resource exploitation, the HRE program? And over the years, every time the CIA has dabbled in what they called interrogation, which is really just abuse, 
It was this family of interrogational abuses that I can get into in a little more detail if you'd like. But generally speaking, every time over the course of history that they try to apply this family of interrogational abuses, they wound up killing somebody. And once they killed somebody, it's hard to figure out what to do with the body right? The corpus delecti. And so it would get him in trouble. There'd be congressional hearings. They'd promise never to do it again. Internally, they'd say, we have lessons learned. We can never go down this road again, but there's never been any accountability. So guess what happens? Emotions get high again. When emotions are high, rationality is low. They revert back to their primal thing. What are we going to do? Well, we used to do this. Let's do this again. And it gets them in trouble. And that's actually what happened after September 11th. So when they created this RDI program, President Bush had to make a decision. Now, what do we do with the other suspected terrorists that I have said we're going to bring to justice? By November 13th, he issued a military order. And that military order, President Bush said that he, as the commander in chief, and due to the state of national emergency from the horrific attacks of September 11th, could create a military commission process where he had the authority to try before military commissions anyone who is or was a member of Al Qaeda, anyone who aided, abetted, or knowingly harbored the Al Qaeda terrorist network. And that presidential order went to the Secretary of Defense who at the time was Donald Rumsfeld, went to the Secretary of the Army, and then wound up in my lap. And so my job as the deputy commander of what was known as the Criminal Investigation Task Force was to establish a task force because I became the U.S. government's chief investigator for the Al-Qaeda terrorist network for trials before military commissions. And the challenge there, Helen, was that you had a career federal law enforcement officer, a federal agent myself, who is also a counterintelligence officer who, who knows the tradecraft of counterintelligence, who was applying the rules of evidence, operating under the rule of law, preserving the Geneva Conventions, because while the president said that they did not necessarily have to apply, that we would treat prisoners as if they did. So I operated under the color of that authority from the president as a chief investigator. The CIA took a different route, and the CIA decided to outsource torture. And they decided that the application of force, particularly psychological torture, they preferred psychological torture to physical torture, not because they're more humane, because the psychological torture was more devastating. They could get people to comply with their wishes through this series of psychological events that they called it triple D, debility, dependency, and dread. And if they could make the conditions of that prisoner so dreadful that they would comply with their wishes. And that's exactly what happened, Helen. And so they, they confused cooperation with compliance. And so they didn't get cooperation. They got compliance and they got a lot of bad information. And we pursued a lot of bad leads and we did a lot of bad things to people because the fundamental flaw was that the infliction of pain would elicit accurate and liable information, and just the opposite occurred. Afghanistan has been in the news constantly for weeks now, Mark. After the last 20 years, the destruction, the loss of so many lives, how does it make you feel to see the humanitarian crisis that's been unfolding and the Taliban back in control? 
Yeah, th- this is the pain we're going to go through because of the decision to utilize torture as an instrument in national policy. Unfortunately for us, the collective us, the free world, us, people who are now in power with the Taliban, some of them have been to Guantanamo, have been subjected through this you know, debility, dependency, and dreadful process of sleep deprivation and just totally humiliated and debilitated. But let's remember there were black sites in Afghanistan. There were forward operating bases. These things were built into special operating procedures, these same practices. And so at black sites and dark prisons like Bagram and like others whose names I'm not allowed to mention through Afghanistan and even in Iraq, People have been subjected to these type of practices. And so many of those in power, not just uh, in power in the Taliban now, but in those tribal regions that the Taliban is going to need to fight what I would view as a worse enemy, ISIS, or reemergence of Al-Qaeda, have been subjected to the same humiliation of our practices. And so the Haqqani terrorist network, which we've spent probably billions of dollars on trying to counter uh, with terrorist financing and recruitment is now in charge of security for the Taliban. So, you know, someone from the FBI US government or the attorney general may have to sit across the table from someone who's on the FBI's most wanted list and there's a multi-million dollar bounty on their head based on prior experiences and now they're in some form of government. I mean, the absolute hypocrisy, you know, we have no credibility and this is going to remain in place as long as we continue to operate uh, Guantanamo Bay as part of this gulag archipelago of dark sites and black prisons and continue to propagate this big lie uh, that torture was necessary uh, and effective and safe and avoid the painful truth that it was war crimes and that we ought to be held accountable. Those people involved should be accountable in some form or fashion for what they did because it created the world we live in today. It made us less safe. I view as the most critical thing to the national security of the United States wasn't a second wave of attack, but it was the manner in which the CIA and the U.S. government attacked, the way that they turned the global war on terrorism into a global war of terrorism, where we started to become the terrorists in the minds of the populace that we claim we were trying to liberate. And so until we reconcile with that, until we look at the fact that we have 39 people at Guantanamo, many of them in indefinite detention without trial, while 10 or so may be going before some semblance of what I call a, an Azkaban-like process, where there's a cloak of invisibility shrouded over anything that might implicate anyone in torture, Uh, I mean, how do we have any credibility with anyone while we continue to operate this offshore gulag under this cloak of invisibility? I argue that we have very little credibility in the world when we're talking particularly to anyone who's been through any of these inhumane processes. It must have put you, Mark, in a dreadful position where at the highest levels of government, I suppose if you like, state-sponsored torture is being sanctioned, perhaps under more palatable names like enhanced interrogation. How did that sit with you that this is going on and you know it's wrong, it's not right, and you also know that it doesn't lead to the right information? How did you square that away and manage to do your job knowing what was going on? 
So when I saw this happening, when I saw, and I, I can tell you the exact date on October 3rd, when a CIA lawyer from the Counter Terrorism Center came to Guantanamo, this is October 3rd, 2002, and explained what the EIT program was. Little did I know the depths of depravity of the program. I knew they were using abusive techniques. I mean, I had the highest security clearances. I was the chief investigator for Al-Qaeda. So we had access to all of the intelligence community records that we could get access to uh, from the NSA and from the CIA. We had liaison officers at the CIA. We worked closely with them in different areas. But when I saw the CIA come to Guantanamo, at that time. Uh, this is before the government has publicly acknowledged that Guantanamo was a CIA black site. At the time, that was highly classified compartment information. I could not talk about it. At the time, it has now been uh, publicly acknowledged in court testimony. But Helen, when I saw that coming to the Department of Defense, I never imagined in my wildest dreams that the military would revert to such tactics. I knew the history of the CIA. I disagree with President Obama when he said, you, you know, we need to look forward, not backwards. You have to look backwards. And if you look backwards, you can see that historically they had reverted to these abuses. And so it wasn't that shocking uh, that people who may have been well-intended, maybe they were, maybe they weren't would revert to some things that were not just ineffective, but counterproductive. But for the United States military to actually buy in to state-sponsored torture, uh, I mean, I was at the meetings in the Pentagon where they said, if the Secretary of Defense signs on to this, we will be committing war crimes, and he could be tried under universal jurisdiction when he travels that people involved in these programs, their travel may have to be restricted because these are war crimes we are signing up for. And so for me, I actually thought that it was some generals who were just ignorant of what it takes to do an investigation or an interrogation that were trying to buy in to this fabrication that the CIA was purporting that they were so effective or great at doing. I was really trying to save the generals for making decisions that would not be in their best interest, the best interest of my mission to bring terrorists to justice, or the best interest of the United States government. The irony of this process is that while the CIA outsourced that torture program to contract psychologists who were awarded or were paid an $81 million contract for their involvement in the torture program, the actual contract was for $183 million. It was cut short when the program was uh, illuminated when the Abu Ghraib photos were released. When you look back historically at that, the irony was while the CIA was contracting with psychologists to do torture, full-time career operational psychologists in the intelligence community, including the CIA, were helping me develop my rapport-based interrogation techniques and methodologies because we knew those to be the most effective to obtain accurate liable information. And so on the one hand, you had my task force working with the CIA to obtain accurate liable information to bring terrorists to justice and other elements of the CIA outsourcing torture to contract psychologists who had no experience in interrogation, no experience in terrorism, no experience in Al-Qaeda, who were actually applying a family of interrogational abuses. And in my opinion, 
how could they not know or how could they not believe that it would produce unreliable information? Because that's what it had done historically. And so that's what the public has to reconcile with. Was that torture program actually enacted to produce information to support policy decisions? You knew that those techniques were not only cruel and inhumane and unconstitutional, but also ineffective from the the reading, the background reading I've done about you, Mark. And you're quoted as saying, the more you beat people up, the harder they work to figure out what you want to hear. Tell us a bit about your rapport-based techniques and how you get much more out of somebody in terms of information with those gentler techniques and treating them properly. It's really just about treating people uh, humanely. I've developed my own interrogation training program. I call it SMART, Strategic Methods for Assessing Reliability and Truth. And it's the SMART trade craft because, you know, it's a craft. And so what we've learned, let me tell you what we've learned based on our torture. And so when President Obama took office, he issued an executive order, 13491, that said we won't torture anymore. But we need to learn the best methods to obtain accurate and reliable information to protect our national security. Because he knew and we knew about all of the bad information we got. We were chasing ghosts. We were getting bad information. We we were misapplying resources. We were making bad policy decisions uh, based on information tortured out of people. What happened was the government formed what's called the High Value Detainee Interrogation Group. This was a a multi-agency organization that had a director who was a senior executive from the FBI, a deputy director from the CIA, and another deputy director from the Department of Defense. And this constituted the largest uh, research science program in history, at least in 50 years, to try to determine through science why someone would actually give us accurate, reliable information. And uh, I became the chair of this HIG research committee. It reinforced that some of the techniques that I was using, it reinforced that why they may have been effective. The research has shown me that some of the other things that I was doing may not have been as effective as I thought, or might not be for the reasons that I thought. And it also taught me that uh, some of the things that I might have been doing, I should never do again. And so what the research has affirmed and what top-tier interrogators view as the most beneficial trait in an interrogator is empathy. Because it's not about you talking, it's about you listening. And so what a good top-tier, an interrogation professional does is set the conditions for memory to work. And memory works best when you're relaxed, not when you're under pressure, right? When you're under pressure, you have cognitive load and you're worrying about survival, If you're hungry, if you're starved, if you're naked, if you're cold, if some of those things that are now in the public record about what the CIA did with the depths of the depravity of their program, how accurate and reliable do you imagine any type of information would be? You know, totally unreliable. And and that's what it proves out. And, And so there's some research about reciprocity, right, that says if you give someone something, then they feel compelled to give you something in exchange. Well, when I walk into a room, I give someone a warm smile. I ensure that I am as less threatening as possible because they are in a position of vulnerability. And so what you want to do is set the conditions for a successful outcome. Nasser Abbas was a member of Jamaa Samia in Southeast Asia, uh, recruited and trained the Bali bombers. And when I talked to Nasser Abbas about when he was 
captured and he cooperated. What he said to me was he expected to be abused and tortured by the Indonesian authorities, and he wasn't. And he said they treated him with dignity and respect. And as a Muslim, he felt compelled to return that respect. The fact that they were respectful to him dislodged his expectations. It derailed his previous training where people said, you're going to be abused, you're going to be tortured. And that's not what happened. So he started to question that ideology that he had taught before and he cooperated and he gave information and and he is now working with Indonesian authorities trying to de-radicalize or get others to disengage from getting involved in violent extremism. What your audience need to realize is that we are all, particularly you are all conditioned to what an interrogation looks like based on what screenwriters write. And in reality, it might not look anything like that. It may be sitting on the floor with a cup of tea and some dates. It may be sharing some French fries from McDonald's. It may be in a wooden hut. For me, it may have been on a ship. It may be under a tree. And so the goal really is just to set the conditions and strategically use your information. So that's what an interrogation is today. If you saw me doing an interrogation, it may look a lot more like this conversation, but it look a lot more like what you're doing right now, listening, listening and learning. That's what good interviews do, just like good journalists. I think good interviews don't jump in and they listen and they allow the interview to breathe. I think you don't fill the gaps because sometimes in my experience as a journalist, the best line comes when you give somebody that second or two of thought process. I'm sure that's the same in your world too. It's fascinating for me as an interviewer to listen to those kinds of techniques and the science behind it. Can these kind of techniques, Mark, protect interrogators from psychological trauma too? They really do because what, and there's a whole new wave right now of science-based methodologies. I was a member of a steering committee 15 experts that developed what's called the Mendes Principles on Effective Interviewing that countries are now adopting that talks about uh, utilizing these science-based methods. But what these methods do, Helen, is preserve the dignity of the process, right? It preserves the dignity of people on both sides of that interrogation table. And so what we're certainly experiencing in the U.S. right now is a wave of people calling for police reform defunding the police, Black Lives Matter movements, and the police feel under fire right now because the communities that we serve have lost trust in us. They've lost trust in our ability to do our jobs the way that that we ought to be doing them. And the only way to restore that trust is to treat people with dignity and respect because it doesn't matter if it's warfare or policing, but once you interview that person, they go back to their community and they talk about how they were treated. And so this this is the problem with the proclamations that we would be treated as liberators when we went into these countries because we systematically abuse people. And right now in the U.S., we're doing a lot of de-escalating training for use of force. Uh, we're on the scene. We're trying to make sure we de-escalate. Well, that's great. But what happens if you now go into the interrogation room and you re-escalate? Right? If you bring back coercive techniques or practices or treat people harshly, that impacts that person you're being interviewed who goes back to their community, but it impacts the professionalism of the person doing the interviewing. 
And so the nice part about the science-based approach is it preserves the dignity on both sides of the interrogation table so that once you learn that you're actually, you're not guessing, right? There's actually science behind your practice. I cannot force anybody to talk to me. I could probably force them to make sounds, but I can't force cooperation. Cooperation is volitional. But what top tier interviewers and interrogators know that is if you give that person a voice, if you allow them to talk, uh, in my SMART training program, we look at a couple of things. We, we look at restorative justice. There's some research out of Yale University uh, by a, a professor named Tom Tyler, and he looked at the U.S. judicial system. And what he saw was that when people were given a voice and were allowed to talk and, and understand the process, even if they were convicted, they were more likely to accept that because they believed the process to be a fair and just one. And so in my smart tradecraft, I take that theory and methodology and I apply it to the interrogation room. Ensure that the person gets to talk, ensure that they have a voice, explain things to them, allow them to explain things to you. Don't interrupt. Don't try to apply what, what you think happened. Listen to what they're telling you that your outcomes will be accepted. I'm looking at some research. Uh, I have a call later today with a Marco Meyer, a uh, philosopher from Germany, about epistemic vice and epistemic virtue. And so, again, in my Smart Tradecraft program, it's about ensuring that our activities as members of the state, right, uh, are virtuous, right, that, that we behave with virtue because the outcomes will be better for them and for us. Right. As a professional, don't we want to, to know that what we're doing uh, has some sense? Particularly if, if, you know, for me right now, if I'm operating for a client, right, I'm sure that client would expect me to uh, act with some type of virtue, with some type of professional ethics. And so that's where we're trying to get to. We're not there yet. This research is trickling down in the US and in the UK. In the United States right now, my former agency, NCIS, has enacted new policies that said we will no longer uh, teach any of the confession-driven methodologies we have in the past. We have evolved to science-based methods now. We will only utilize science-based methods in our training and our practice. And the director went out to the field and said, this may not be consistent with what you've previously been trained or what you previously have been doing. But from henceforward, this is our policy. This is how we're going to behave. This is how we are going to improve our professionalism. And the same thing, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in the United States, I used to be the assistant director for training there, has evolved their training practices to only use science-based approaches. There's incredible work going on in the Los Angeles Police Department. So there are these pockets of excellence. Uh, that's one of the great things about being a uh, visiting scholar at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and uh, the co-founder of what we call Project Aletheia, where we're trying to bridge the gap between the science and practice of interrogation. We're trying to make sure that more practitioners who want to improve their practice can connect with, with uh, valid scientists and that scientists who have evidence-based uh, uh, studies can connect with practitioners so that their science gets better because they understand the practice more. And the practitioners, the practice gets better because they understand the science. Uh, and as more countries adopt and accept the Mendes principles on effective interviewing, 
we'll see more pockets of excellence around the world where we hope to diminish uh, these confession-driven practices that we hope to, to help mitigate torture, which goes on around the world in different countries, and really restore dignity to the profession of being uh, an investigator or being an interrogator. Oh my goodness, it sounds such inspirational work and I feel quite honoured to to hear behind the scenes what's going on and I can see why you're so passionate about the work you do, Mark. It really is incredible. I don't really want to dwell on Guantanamo, but I do have a couple of more questions before we move on to your broader experiences. Can you paint a picture for us of what it was like for you? I mean, you're the only person I know who's ever been to Guantanamo Bay and I'm sure most of our audience have just seen news reports and just a sense of what your memories are of it and and what it was like. Yeah. Unfortunately, Helen, uh, Guantanamo was an opportunity lost for the United States. The concept I thought was a good one. Whether it was a good idea for the president to establish military commissions or not, history will judge. You know, he made some flawed decisions, in my opinion. He said that the the U.S. courts would be ineffective in bringing terrorists to justice, and that was just a factually inaccurate statement. Uh, historically, the U.S. courts had been very effective in bringing terrorists to justice. I mean, you mentioned the blind shake on Ronald Rahman and the first World Trade Center attack, and, and we, we historically have done this very well. What derailed that logic was really the decision that we would apply torture. When I was given the order to establish a task force and conduct those investigations, that we would be done in about a year, as odd as that seems right now, 20 years later, when we still have not brought the 9-11 and call suspects to justice, my battle rhythm was based on get as much evidence as possible quickly, get people in and out of Gitmo quickly. It would be a small number because it was just supposed to be for the worst of the worst. And unfortunately, that's not what happened. The first detainees that we had intended to bring to justice before military commission were actually Mozambique from the UK, Faraz Abbasi from the UK, and Hicks from Australia, uh, because they were low-level people. They didn't do very much. They spoke English. We have what we call the five eyes, the relationship between the, the US and the UK and Australia. We thought that, you know, getting these people in and out, you know, maybe the sentence would be time served. Uh, maybe there'd be no sentence. Maybe they'd be found not guilty of whatever crimes that we could come up with for military commissions. But the idea was get people in and out quickly so that we show that our system is a just one. Around April of 2002, we were looking at trying to do the first mock trials for the military commission. So we were actually going to take uh, role player prisoners, see how we could transport them to the courtroom, you know, work out those kinks in an exercise or two. Where do the prisoners sit? Where do witnesses come in? Let's kind of practice this. We were planning that in April of two, and there was a meeting at the Crawford Ranch uh, that Tony Blair attended with George Bush. Yep. There was a press conference where Blair and Bush linked weapons of mass destruction to the global war on terrorism, and that was not accurate. And that's when, uh, certainly I think history will look back on the fact that the U.S. and U.K. agreed to go to war with Iraq. And to go with the war with Iraq you needed this weapons of mass destruction argument, which they had. And they later come up with uh, an argument that there was al-Qaeda in Iraq. Immediately after that meeting, Bush seemed to lose interest in military commission process. 
We were told, don't go through with the mock trials. We're going to hold them in advance now. And we would joke, we just traded the military commission's process for war with Iraq. We, we just made that deal with the UK that the war with Iraq was more important than bringing suspected terrorists to justice before this military commission process. And in fact, I mentioned earlier in our discussion about that meeting in October when the CIA came to Guantanamo and the lawyer from the CIA said, if a detainee dies, you're doing it wrong. And that was in October, 2002. By November, 2002, Ghul Rockman, a prisoner in a black site in Afghanistan, died in a dark, dank chamber of horrors chained to a wall naked from the waist down in the application of what the CIA was calling EIT, Enhanced Interrogation Techniques, which I say, or or just the EIT program was just an excuse to inflict torture. And so not more than a month later, a detainee died again, just as they had historically when the CIA dabbled in these interrogation uh, techniques by using abuse, by replicating what they had done in the past. I was also looking to bring to trial before military commissions a detainee, Ibn Sheikh Alibi. He was the emir of the Calden training camp, the boss of the Calden training camp training uh, fighters. And he was in custody in Bagram, Afghanistan. And Ibn Sheikh Alibi said there was Al-Qaeda in Iraq, high-level connections between Al-Qaeda and Iraq. And George Bush went to Ohio and Cincinnati and got the American public riled up that there was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And Colin Powell went before the United Nations and garnered uh, an international coalition to go to war with Iraq. Among the things he said, there was Al-Qaeda in Iraq based on false and fabricated information from Ibn Sheikh Alibi, who said there was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. After that, Ibn Sheikh Alibi was debriefed, and he said, I just said that so the pain would stop. So we went to war with Iraq based on false and fabricated information that was the product of this EIT program, Excuses to Inflict Torture Program, which in this case was outsourced to another country to inflict. And I never got Ibn Sheikh Alibi to bring him to justice for military commissions because rather than send him to Guantanamo, as they did many other detainees, uh, the U.S. government transferred him to Libya to Gaddafi. And Ibn Sheikh Alibi allegedly committed suicide in a cell under the custody of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. Not surprisingly, I suppose, Mark, attempts were made to stop the publication of the book Unjustifiable Means, the inside story of how the CIA, Pentagon and US government conspired to torture. What happened and how did you manage to get it published in the end? I am required, uh, based on my current and former security clearances, that anything I publish, the government gets a chance to review. It's called the pre-publication review process. And when I wrote Unjustifiable Means, and really I can tell you what really helped propel me to write it was uh, meeting John McCain, you know, one of my heroes, uh, when the torture report was released, when I was talking about writing the book, and, and he knew my story from the Senate Armed Service Committee hearings. He knew that I kind of blew the whistle, for lack of a better term, on this meeting where the CIA came to Guantanamo and I reported up the chain. And it really started this series of events that resulted in the Senate Armed Service Committee hearings because I, not knowing 
that that information was compartmented, sent it up the chain of command because had they read me into the program, I would not have been able to do so. But the fact that they did not read me into the program, I was just a criminal investigator who was obtaining leads. And as an investigator for the NCIS, I was trying to prevent war crimes from occurring, right? I was seeing that military personnel were about to commit felonies. And so I was reporting it to try to prevent crimes from happening. So when I wrote the book, I initially wrote it as a leadership book about what it was like leading during crisis, you know, what it was like having to oppose what I believe to be an unlawful order. You know, everyone says, you know, what what I find ironic is, you know, I I hear these, you know, SEALs and these Marines and all these, you know, know, law enforcement say they run towards gunfire, but say a word against your boss (laughs) or come out against some policy that may risk your career or your bonus uh, and you become a little more cowardly. And so I'm really proud of the courage of my entire chain of command, my organization. People try to make it out that, you know, I was this lone whistleblower. I was just doing my job. My job was to preserve and defend the Constitution, and these things were unconstitutional. And my organization, NCIS, opposed torture. And the Department of Navy opposed torture. And the senior military JAGs, the military lawyers, opposed torture. So, you know, they try to make it out as, you know, everyone went along with this torture program. No, they did not. They absolutely did not. This was opposed tooth and nail, internal fights and battles. People's careers were at stake, and this was an ongoing fight. And so when I wrote Unjustified Beans, I wanted this to be kind of example to others that if you just do your job, if you stay centered, I used to say in the Pentagon, you know, we swear an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, not Donald Rumsfeld. We don't swear an oath to the Secretary of Defense. Al-Qaeda pledges buyout. They pledge an oath to a person, right? They pledge an oath to Osama bin Laden. Ayman al-Zawahiri, the current emir of Al-Qaeda. We don't do that in the United States. Our oath is to protect and defend this thing of values, this kind of concept that we have in democracy, that we're going to adhere to this rule of law. And so I wrote it thinking this could be an example that, you know, you can withstand the pressure. I mean, believe me, a lot of my life sucks, if I can say that on the air, (laughs) right? I mean, I was under tremendous pressure and it was not fun. Believe me, it was not fun, you know, being told that, you know, who are you to stand up to the Secretary of Defense? And, you know, what you're going to be responsible if a a bomb goes off in a busload of school kids. You've tried, people tried to make it as as worse as possible for me, you know, psychologically for, for my decisions that, you know, the world is going to come crashing down because you are not letting us do what we think we ought to do. And I'm just doing my job. I don't take any pleasure in this. It's not fun having to do this stuff, but I'm duty bound. I must oppose unlawful order was my position. And so I wrote the book kind of with that in mind. And then the Republicans on the campaign trail started talking about waterboarding and torture. And Donald Trump is saying, you know, we're going to do worse than waterboarding. And so I had to rewrite the book because the book was more initially more about, you know, NCIS and what it was like being an NCIS agent. The TV show is the most popular drama in television history. And I thought, you know, well, people might like to know what it's like being a real NCIS agent. If you're expecting Mark Harmon, LL Cool J, sorry to disappoint your audience. You know, you, you just get this glorified street cap from New Jersey. Uh, but, but I really had to change the book to be a book where I wanted to kind of illuminate the darkness. And, and I thought that if I got it into the policymakers' hands, early in the Trump administration, that it would change opinions. Naively, I thought that. Naively, I thought that while I didn't think much of Donald Trump based on his history, I thought that at least the people he appointed could benefit from what I had been through. And so I tried to get it out just around the inauguration. 
because the pre-publication process says it takes 30 days. Well, my book was in pre-publication for 179 days. There's 113 redactions, some more than a page. My book went to 10 different agencies to review. Uh, I was not told which agencies were going to review it. I still don't know who reviewed my book. I don't know who got my work product. I had to elicit the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, and the Knights Institute for First Amendment Rights at Columbia University to act as my lawyers. We sent letters to six senators, including John McCain and Dianne Feinstein, about the censorship of my views, particularly knowing that who helped motivate me to write my book was John McCain and Dianne Feinstein, based on the work in the Center Armed Service Committee Detainee Abuse Report and the Senate Torture Report. And articles were written. Alberta Mora, the former general counsel of the Navy, uh, wrote a piece in Newsweek magazine about the censorship. And a few reporters wrote articles about the censorship. And fortunately, six days before Congress went back into session, I got my manuscript back, torn apart with those redactions, delayed beyond where it could have had the most impact. It didn't come out until October of 2017 after policies were set with major redactions. People who had ordered the book canceled the book. So if this was a CIA disruption operation, it was effective. It disrupted the momentum. It ensured that less people read my book because of those tactics. Right now, I have a piece in pre-publication review. It's called Big Lies and Painful Truths, co-authored with Professor Maria Hartwig at John Jay College, who does not have a clearance. Yet her work, her work product has been in pre-publication review now for more than 60 days. I'm told that one component is still sitting on that review that I had hoped to publish on 9-11. Within that 30-day window, I submitted it for pre-publication review in July. And so today, as we speak, they haven't found a way to come in and stop me from talking. Well, that's good. But if I write and go to publish, it has to go for review. And so I still am censored in the written word, even though I am now working in the academic world. If somebody co-authors with me, it exposes them to the government pre-publication review process, to censorship. I believe it's an infringement on their academic freedoms. And so this is the challenge we have today In a democracy where we talk about the First Amendment rights and freedom of the press, I've been retired from the government uh, since 2010, and yet I'm still uh, subject to have anything that I publish reviewed and censored and the government to know about it in advance to possibly develop tactics to counter what I'm going to say, to develop their own counter-narrative strategy in advance of publication of what I write, which is sometimes about them and the pre-publication review process. Welcome to my world. Welcome to your world. Your world is fascinating. And uh, you mentioned NCIS, the TV series, which uh, we do like in our household. But on a serious note, I mean, your work has led you, Mark, to some of the darkest corners of the world and face to face with some of its most dangerous people. What have been the most perhaps frightening experiences and also what have been the highs for you of being in NCIS? The frightening experiences, I would say, really evolved. Now, I've been, I've worked a lot of undercover operations. I've been undercover in Thailand buying heroin and, you know, compounds of drug lords. And I've been in the bush of Kenya uh, undercover doing anti poaching operations. And, and I've worked high level offensive counterintelligence operations. And, and, and I've, I've worked homicides and murders and rapes and all the, all the things. Uh, but you, you're trained to do that. And, and you take uh, calculated risks. Uh, in, in those uh, fields, uh, but but really, I would say, 
The most frightening thing uh, in my career was, frankly, the decision that the U.S. government made to embrace torture as an instrument of national policy. We've been down this road before, the U.S. and the U.K., right? We've determined that people do have the right to challenge their indefinite detention without trial. Yet, we're going to ask the Supreme Court once again with Abu Zubaydah, the CIA's first you know, human subject testing guinea pig, uh, whether we can continue to hold him, who wasn't even a member of al-Qaeda. I mean, the entire basis for the torture program was based on bad information from the CIA that he was number three in al-Qaeda. He wasn't even in al-Qaeda. That's the irony of what's happened. But, but they've been able to manipulate the public record. And that's why a voice like mine is frankly so dangerous. And that's why a voice like mine, at least my written word, is so censored uh, because it illuminates the darkness of that. And so that's the most frightening thing because I think democracy is at risk if this continues. And just a thought on a personal note, Mark, you talk about the, the pressures and, and you know your job has been quite extraordinary over the last few decades. How, as an individual, how as a human being, have you coped? Because presumably after months away sometimes, you go home to your family and I'm guessing many times you're not even able to discuss what you've been doing. How have you managed to keep sane through all of this? Highly compartmented. I write in my book that my wife is going to read things for the first time in the book that she was unaware of. I remember I was sitting on the phone talking to uh, Pamela Hamilton, who was my publicist for Unjust Follow Me, a, a noted author in her own right, uh, author of Lady Be Good, an amazing uh, book. But I, I was talking about being undercover in Thailand, and, and my wife overheard me and, and said, you were what? I mean, when you were on those trips, uh, because, you know, when I was home, you know, I'm just, you know, Marky Mark. I'm rolling on the floor with my kids and I'm playing with my dog and I'm acting goofy and making faces and giving piggyback rides and throwing people in pools. And, you know, but then there's the work, Mark Fallon. Then there's special agent, Mark Fallon, who's a, and maybe it's because I've always worked undercover work and undercover operations and, and I've had other identities. I've carried identities that I was other people. I've gone by other names. I've assumed other roles. And so I think that possibly that compartmentation was what kind of got me through those decades of, you know, balancing being this national security professional with, you know, being a dad. Right now I'm, I'm a grandfather. You know, last week I was at a JV football game because my granddaughter's in the band and I'm videotaping, you know, the band playing and, you know, sending it to Pamela Hamilton, my publicist, with the joke, I used to hunt terrorists. <laughs> Gosh, what a story. I feel I could talk to you all day, Mark. I think we might have to do a part two because there's so many more questions I have for you. It's been absolutely fascinating to be in your company today. And I just thank you for being so honest and open about the career. I mean, the New Jersey boy who wanted to fight crime, he did well, hey? Uh, some would say. I kind of think so. You've been listening to Mark Fallon, former NCIS special agent and currently director of ClubFed, which specialises in strategic consulting services to clients. If you'd like to learn more about Mark's work, then go to markfallon.us or read his fascinating book, Unjustifiable Means, the inside story of how the CIA, Pentagon and US government conspired to torture. You can download more than 70 Convex Conversations with inspirational people like Mark at convex.podbean.com 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you enjoy listening to your podcasts. I'll be back next week with another great guest, so I'll see you then.